All right. We're guessing the frog, if it is a frog. I'll give you that. It is a frog. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's quite a sort of peaceful one. Mm-hmm. I quite like the uh, sort of like peaceful nature of it. Hmm. Can hear quite a few of them calling. Sounds quite jungly. What kind of frog sounds like this? What are we doing the paper on? Oh, it's got mm. nothing to do with that, mate. Absolutely okay. nothing. I'll stop you right there. there the are paper no provides clues. no clues. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hmm. All right, well, I'm going to say it's... Mm, it sounds like there's lots of them calling, so I'm going to say it's... Uh, literally can't even think of a single kind of frog right now <laughs> it's amazing it's amazing how there are literally thousands of frogs in the world yet prompt someone to come up with a good number of species it's, it's tricky putting people on the spot it's tricky i'm just gonna go red-eyed tree frog because i can think of it i mean it's not I, uh, I, I can't even give you any clues to help you along because what you're hearing is a species that I've played myself here, to be fair, because I find, <laughs> I barely know how to say this. But <laughs> I guess it's like Raucestes, Raucestes, Shilongensis. What I'm going to do, I'm going to paste its full name in a chat so you can see the words and uh, you can tell me how disappointingly far away. I mean, yeah, I don't... I might be. Oh, my word. Oh, okay. So... Rawa, Rawa Chestis Shilongensis. Okay. Shilongensis. So is this from China? That sounds like Chinese. Some. It's actually Northwest India. Oh, okay. And it's a lovely little frog, sort of very pale, quite small, classic sort of rana shape, I'd say, with a sort of pointier little snout. And it's actually been subject of a recent redescription. And I say recent, sort of four years ago, five years ago, 2018. So there's not really all that much known about it, or at least it certainly seems that way, but they're lovely little chubby little frogs popping up sort of April time when the rains come, and uh, you weren't too far off with your sort of tree-dwelling suggestions. So stream sides, broadly forested areas, perching on leaves and branches, small trees and trunks of pine trees, that sort of stuff. Only little guys, so sort of seven centimetres for the males and about five for the females. Yeah, direct developers. That's come up in previous <laughs> episodes. No time wasting with tadpoles. Yeah, so it's just straight from egg to pure frog. And uh, only takes about 30 days for them to do, to do that. Eggs well, get laid good. 30 days later, you've got some frogs on the go. Suddenly frogs. Yeah. Well, that's cool. He's finally these papers that actually had the advertisement call alongside the uh, redescription that was quite nice. Because that's how I found the paper, is I found the call on iNaturalist and then backworked it to the paper that was connected to it that was rather cool. Nice, yeah. They kind of look a little bit... Um, they're not one colour, are they? They're like creamy and brownie. They almost look a little bit like the bird poo frog we were talking about. They're not dissimilar, ago. right? Yeah. 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 But possibly endangered now, which sucks. Yeah. Oh, well. But there you go. Nice. Very hard to say. Raul Chestes Shilongensis. 
Nice little species of frog. I, I like the call. It's a nice call. I think we should focus on nice calls that are sort of quite relaxing and a bit like, it sounds like you're in the wilderness. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I like some of the me. spooky ones we've had in the past that you're not even sure if it's an animal. That's fair. Well, let's completely change tack. We're moving over from Get out a here, frog frogs. to a lizard. And this is a study by Brock Cellini. Aiton, Madden, Ramos, Blois, Paphilis, Edwards, 2022. Colormorph predicts social behavior and contest outcomes in a polymorphic lizard, Podarchis erhardii, published in Animal Behavior. So we're talking about this little brown lizard. It's called Erhard's wool lizard, hence the name Podarchis erhardii, but it's also commonly called the Aegean wool lizard. Okay, I prefer that one. Me too. I prefer that too. The reason it's called Erhardii, it was named after Dr. D. Erhard, who was a German naturalist who spent many years in the Cyclades, which is this area of islands in Greece, and apparently wrote a book, which at the time I would imagine was a seminal text on the uh, fauna of the Cyclades called Fauna de Cycladen in 1858. So we're going back a little while, but we're still talking about Dr. Erhard today because of this little lizard. And wow. uh we're talking about the lizard today, really. <laughs> yes, we're talking about the lizard. But they were considered once, Ben. At one time, there were considered to be 28 recognised subspecies, mostly on different Greek islands in the Aegean Sea, mm-hmm. uh, hence the name Aegean wall lizard. But lots of these subspecies now have been brought into question. I think at some point, taxonomists were just like, look, scan out. Well, they're control. subspecies, right? So, like, that's fine. Well, yeah, but it's still just needlessly confusing to have 28 subspecies of something. Nah, because you can just ignore them. Yeah, you can. Like a subspecies, whatever. What's better than ignoring them, rendering them <laughs> moot, which is what recent authors have done, and there's now thought to really be three valid subspecies. Okay. But regardless. So that's a redefinition this, of subspecies. It's a uh, simplification as opposed to just, yeah. they're all one species, stop trying to split them up sort of thing. Yeah, like they're just okay. not necessary. A clarification. So just a few different subspecies. And this particular study took place on Naxos, which is the largest of these Cycladic islands located in the central Aegean Sea, steeped in rich mythology, this area. But the lizards themselves, I mean, I'd say they don't look particularly uh, dramatic. They look classic wool lizardy. They're sort of mostly sort of goldy brown with some black and sort of white and creamy patterns, quite a busy pattern on the back. But they're very, very variable, both in terms of how they look and what they do. They can be big, small. They can have a wide variety of different patterns. They can also be inhabiting different areas, depending on which island you find them on. Sometimes they're saxicolas, living on these little rocky islets. Other times, sandy shores. And they can also inhabit mountaintops up to 2,000 metres above sea level. So pretty a versatile high altitude. Very versatile lizard. Yeah. But one thing they love to do... And, you know, it's called a wall lizard for a reason. Um, they love dry stone walls because they can bask there. They can access their nice food items. The insects come and they can prominently display to their fellow lizards and, yeah, have a nice little time basking. And then also there's like nice little crevices to hide in. It's got everything a lizard could possibly want. And, uh, yeah, the lizards come in a few different colours. So although I've said like across their range, they can be a wide variety of colours. But even within populations, yeah, there's like polymorphic. Exactly. There's three different colour varieties, and these colour varieties occur in both sexes. So both females and males have throat badges, so patches on their throats. They're either orange, yellow or white, 
And orange males, specifically, have this significantly larger body and head than the yellow and white male morphs. And because they have these big heads, the orange ones also have the strongest bite force, which can obviously be useful. And these are lizards which will battle, as we'll get to. But the differences don't end there, because we also know already prior to this paper that the orange and white lizards have different cocktails of chemicals produced by their femoral pores, which are pores on their thighs. And these pores are used for chemical signaling. So they like, you know, like a cat would, I think, sort of mark their territory by squirting some juice out of these pores onto their territory. And any other lizards that come will know this is someone else's territory and that could make it time to fight. So we know there are some physical differences between the different color morphs, these white, orange and yellow color morphs, which are tied to the colors. So, you know, it could be the case that the same genes that control the color of the throat patch also have roles in other aspects of their physical form and what chemicals their glands produce. Mm -hmm. We're not sure exactly the mechanism why, but that would make sense if these color genes were twinned to other things. And essentially, the authors of this paper wanted to see if these color differences extended to the outcome of contests between lizards. So if these lizards go to bat against each other, can you use color as a predictor of how those contests will go what they did they obviously had to have something for the lizards to compete over so they got this nice roasty toasty stone wall they put a heat lamp over it this was cool because they knew the temperature that these lizards prefer beforehand right from previous studies so they have this toasty wall set to their perfect favorite temperature Mm. and they make everywhere Mm. else well just a bit chilly which i kind of loved as this motivated for oh well, i can't stay here i've got to go to the warm spot look how lovely it is so Next this is the lizard know. equivalent yeah this oh. is the lizard equivalent of a bath which is just right the goldilocks Absol- bath absolutely perfect yeah well you get in and you're not sort of like concerned that you're actually burning your skin and that the pain you're feeling is bad but you're also not disappointed with it not being hot enough thermal optimum mm-hmm. thermal optimum so they've Bless. got this wall it's the thermal optimum They're letting two lizards in, but only one can hold the basking rights. So they've set up a situation. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome! (laughs) It's a Thunderdome. And, you know, they weren't unfair on the lizards. They didn't want it to be a mismatch in terms of size, because it's not fair. Right, because they're not looking at size. They're looking at whether different morphs in terms of colour have different success rates. Yeah. In, the, in this and new so, Thunderdome arena they've constructed. So regardless of this, the colours, they had to be a similar size, within 10% of size of each other. And what they did was each lizard had three bouts where it was introduced to the wall arena, and each lizard had to go against one lizard of each other colour. So an orange lizard will go against one orange lizard, and then a white lizard, and then a yellow lizard, not necessarily in that order. So each lizard has a chance to face off against one lizard of each other colour. And they wanted to observe aggressive behaviour, They obviously did have a contingency. If it got too wild, they would have intervened. And they set this boundary where if they saw a lizard chomping another lizard for more than five seconds, they would separate them. I guess just dunk them in water and be like, wait, chill. (laughs) Stop it. Yeah, stop it. But luckily, like, it never really got that intense. The outcomes, they weren't, like, fully going to war, like, trying to kill each other. As with so many of these. Exactly. It's not about that. It's not about ending your competitor it's a competition it's yeah. showmanship it's kind of civilized more than it is defense or anything that you know it's not a predation event is it they're not eating their competitor no 
And so one of the things they were curious about, obviously, if the colors are related to other aspects of their sort of like physical form, they thought maybe one of these colors is better at fighting than the others. And you might think, well, the orange one's got these big jaws. Maybe that's top chomper. Right. You'd be mistaken. You'd be mistaken because actually the white morph won the most intermorph contests. It virtually always beat orange. It over half the time beat yellow. And then the second best was a yellow morph. So yellow morph usually beat orange and sometimes beat white. But the orange morph were just pathetic. They only won 4 out of 20 versus white and 7 out of 20 versus yellow. So this orange morph, despite having the best chompers, is actually the worst fighter. Certainly seemed that way, or at least when it came to blows, it certainly seemed to be that way, didn't it? Because they're also less, I guess, confrontational. Because they didn't just look at just straight up fighting in terms of aggression. They looked at some other aspects like boldness and sort of chemosensory cues and visual cues. So like chemosensory is them wiping their mouth on the sort of warm rocks and things along those lines that are going to be some form of communication to say, hey, don't mess with it, this is mine. Same with the visual stuff. Sort of some form of signaling to say, hey, I own this, back off. And the orange morph just tended to be less of all of those, of all of them in term when compared to the white morph. So the orange morph in general just seemed a lot more passive, I suppose. Shy, <laughs> if you want yeah. a more emotive word. Yeah, the orange morph overall, despite looking the most dangerous, but actually the most pathetic, which is quite a surprise. Or chill, yeah. Maybe just chill. Maybe chill, yeah. I don't know, maybe there's something in that, you know, like maybe they actually, unless they're forced into battle, maybe the fact that they're bigger and have a stronger bite is kind of a deterrent for the other lizards. But actually when the push comes to shove, they can't really do anything about it, which would be strange because normally signals like that have to be honest in order to work because every, you know, eventually the white or yellow one will test an orange one and realise they're pathetic. And that's what they're sort of doing here in this setting. It, it does open a lot of very interesting questions, doesn't it? Because you've got an orange morph that has a stronger bite but doesn't appear to be using it. So you're thinking, okay, so why why does it? But I think the first thing that jumps to my mind is you're only looking at half the equation here, aren't you? Because you're assuming that winning this bout is actually beneficial. Because you're imagining, okay, so you throw this back into the wild, maybe the intensity of battles are not this much because you've got a greater selection of basking sites. Or maybe there's a really strong contingent of female choice for the orange, big, bitey blockhead morph, which sort of counteracts the uh, sort of what would appear to be a behavioural advantage of the white and uh, yellow morphs over the orange because they seem to be better at winning these competitions over basking sites. So there's got to be something sort of counteracting the white and yellow success for the orange morph to sort of still be in the population. You'd expect them just to be pushed out and not capable of breeding and it would eventually sort of disappear so there must be something else going on there to maintain it right maybe yeah because they've got the big chunky heads maybe they're better at crunching beetles maybe they have access right. to the food source the others don't it could be that too right and maybe they just don't need to sort of fight off the white and yellow morphs as much if female choice is more geared towards them anyway so that just mm. there's no point fighting because they can win on another thing or we were talking about scent behavior too could be all sorts of things connected to that as well they were the rarest color as well the orange ones they were least orange ones compared to the other two yes they were yeah they were don't know what that means but it was a thing i'm a little bit 
nervous because I don't know how those studies were done looking at the rates because if you're looking for orange morphs and they also seem to be a shyer one behaviorally, you might mm, be less true. likely to find them. Therefore, you've got just finding less of them doesn't mean there are less of them. Uh, or Did fewer they account them, sorry. for capturability? Yeah, detectability. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So with the other one thing that they wanted to test was um, whether or not an individual color exhibits higher levels of aggression, of aggression towards the same color because that's a, th- a pattern in animals which have these polymorphic different patterns. A lot of times they get most angry and attack the same color as themselves with most vigor, most gusto. Right, because that's their most direct source of competition, presumably? I guess so, yeah. I'm not sure what the mechanism behind that is, but it does send, tend to be a general pattern. Because but- if you're a preferable color from something else, then your closest competitor is one of the same color morph. Therefore, the differential there has to be behavioral. You have to beat them in a competition because visually there's no difference, perhaps. Could be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, we see that in other species. I remember we did that paper about anoles and it was like, this little anole was a different color than the other anole that was locally big, that was big in the local area, because if it had been the same color as the bigger anole, it, the other bigger animal would have seen it as a competition right as immediately a, yes, smashed yes, it. yes 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 <laughs> so yeah yeah it could be that actually yeah things that are identical to them are seen seen as more of a competition or yeah it could be that there's so little difference that they have to battle because they know that actually they're they're not going to win by smell very interesting but yeah there was no evidence that they were more aggro to their own color morph which is yeah kind of the last sort of finding that they had but yeah these little lizards are so aggy i love it I just love the idea that all of these stone walls on the Greek islands are just constant battlegrounds across the millennia and ending in three different distinct colour varieties of lizard all competing for the same walls. Yeah, but obviously to such an extent, such sort of equally matched that no one morph dominates in such a way that, that means that these others stop existing. They do have a little point in the paper that at different locations in different environments different morphs appear at different frequencies, it would seem. So there might be additional sort of um, trade-offs between being a certain morph in a certain location compared to another morph at another location. And that's going to interact with all of this this reproductive competition or basking site competition as well. So it's, it's a fascinating little group of lizard competitiveness. <laughs> it's a wonderful case study. Yeah, it's nice. I always like it when there's a battle going on anyway. It's always fun. <laughs> it's always fun to read about. Yeah, I feel I like we've covered a lot of Thunderdome-esque papers over the years. Yeah, it does appeal. It really does appeal. I mean, yeah, it's just a kind of nice relatable behavior, isn't it? It's a little bit less confusing than the foot dance that we were talking about in the last episode. Of <laughs> episode. I can't really get to grips with that. Still well, it's like, it yeah, it's, you've got winners and losers, so it helps make... Um, inferences can't you because you're like all right this one won therefore this somewhere there should be a benefit to winning right because otherwise you wouldn't put in the effort i think that's often the downside of some of these papers is you don't actually know that winning equates to those genes being passed on more frequently no it's true yeah they could just be sneaky right right Mm. especially when we know there's multiple strategies going on here because we've got three different morphs that if it was all down to fighting the oranges probably wouldn't exist yeah yeah despite their apparently better bite force which is mad but yeah so there we go the life and times of the gm wall lizard padarchis uh, hardii 
battling out on the Greek islands. Um, yeah, it'd be nice to go and see these guys on the Greek islands sometime. So have you got any other business, Ben, this week? I don't. No, no, that's I'm, it's all all easy for me. OK, I was just going to mention we had a correction from Hedrigal. So last. Well, no, it wasn't last. It was quite a few episodes ago. Now we were talking about the hourglass toad, Leptophryne Bourbonica. And we were trying to work out what the name meant. We're making silly jokes about Bourbon biscuits. But I think you mentioned it was like a French thing, but we never really yeah. got that deep into it. But the House of Bourbon is a European dynasty of French origin. So it's a branch of this other dynasty called the Capetian dynasty. And it was the royal house of France and Bourbon kings ruled France and Nevers in the 16th century. And by the 18th century, members of the Spanish Bourbon dynasty held thrones in loads of places like Spain, Naples, Sicily and Parma. So it could be that there's like they're related to that somehow. I'm not sure how that would be. But I also read royal frogs. Yeah. A bit. Yeah. I don't know. But apparently it also means out of date. So it could be that, like, because they've got hourglass on their back, it's they're like out of time, out they're of time. out of date. Yeah, or they again, taste like old bourbon biscuits. I mean, we can go back round in circles here. It's, it's yeah, fine. exactly. So it's not very <laughs> conclusive, but yeah, Hedrigal, thank you for letting us know about the French dynasty thing. It could be to do with that. I tried to find the original paper describing the species, and of course, it's been lost to time. So yeah, it's probably out there in paper, but I couldn't find it digitally. Yeah, anymore. But... <sighs> Yeah, you'd expect another bit of connection to get them to some sort of royal household or dynasty, wouldn't you? You'd need that extra bit of info, like they were described at a time that that household was relevant and therefore they're named after as, you know, a patronage sort of thing. Yeah. Which doesn't seem unlikely at being a European species, right? It's not a European species. That kind of complicates it. It's found oh. in like Indonesia. Indonesia. Malaysia, Thailand. I don't know if it's found in Vietnam, which obviously has yeah, a very... Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, no, that's still tallies, isn't it? No, that's still tallies, because if you're talking... What were the time periods you said for the Bourbon dynasty? 16th to 18th centuries. They were yeah, like exactly. People. So you've got colonial adventures or whatever, bumming around, stealing frogs. They could easily name it after a, a dynasty that patronised their voyage and uh, named a little frog after them. Yeah, I just looked. They were described by Johann Jakob von Schudi, who was a Swiss naturalist, explorer and diplomat, in 1838. So we're could talking a time where Bourbons were still relevant. It could tally up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being Swiss, maybe that was his jam. What's the species epithet again? How does it end? Ica. Bourbonica. Bourbonica. So it means of the Bourbons. Yeah. Could be that. No, wait. Does it? Ica? Ica? What's the end bit called? Suffix. Suffix, aye. A collection of things that relate to a specific place, person, theme. Yeah. I mean, it could be, because it's it's not that much of a leap to turn something that's relating to, to belonging to, or of, or found during reign of. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, we've probably banged on enough about the Borgans <laughs> without a conclusion. Either way. <laughs> cool little frog. It was a cool little frog. It was a cool little frog. We did enjoy the frog. But yeah, um, unless you've got any other business, I was just going to mention, I saw, it's not to do with reptiles, but sometimes I see things and I think, well, Ben would like this. And it's elephant seals, you know, those whopping Absolute seals. monsters, yeah. They're units. Apparently, they might be the mammal which gets the least sleep. Obviously, we don't know. There's probably others that don't get much sleep. That We probably don't know that much about the sleep of all animals. But right now, they are the mammal, I think, which is known to get possibly the least sleep. Reigning so champions. Caveats. 
reigning champions for just... someone comes along and proves otherwise. Exactly. But yeah, so um, for apparently mammologists have been wondering for years, when on earth do elephant seals sleep? Because they seem to be quite active for most of the time. <laughs> they seem unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, they just seem they just Have you seem seen them relentless. fight cars? They don't care. They're just merciless. But anyway, they thought they do this thing called, well, accelerometry, basically. Putting accelerometers and GPS locating these animals revealed that they do this thing where they go underwater and then they do drift dives where they're basically just like, but not really swimming. They're just kind of slowly sinking. And um, <laughs> yeah, basically, since they've started putting accelerometers on there, oh they found goodness. out that actually they're sleeping. So this is ridiculous. They dive down deep and then they go to sleep and then they sleep underwater for 10 minutes, just bobbing Imagine along, and then they wake up again and sleeping to the surface. In a place you can't breathe. I know, I it's know, it's insane. insane. Why would they do this to themselves? Also, the idea of, okay, I'm going to sleep underwater so nothing can get me. What messes with an elephant seal? Well, another elephant seal? They do have serious predators because they're vulnerable to sharks and not on the whales. land they're not no not on the land but on the land you know if, you, if you're gonna go to sleep and you want to avoid sharks you don't sleep floating to the bottom of the ocean <laughs> i'm guessing that's do. a tactical that's misstep that is uh, it seems like it could be genius i mean they're gigantic super megafauna that's still alive i would imagine that on the land if you just fall asleep on the land you're going to be at threat from horrible bipedal apes so yeah that could be why <sighs> that's such a I can't imagine it's a human-driven adaptation. Maybe not. For something that, that... That seems like such a fundamentally bizarre thing. To sleep underwater and to be capable of only doing it in like 10-minute stints and still get adequate rest. Maybe they don't. Maybe, yeah. maybe they don't get adequate rest. They're just all slightly insane from the lack of sleep. Wow, yeah. So as they descend, they enter a deep sleep stage known as slow wave sleep while maintaining a controlled glide downward. And then they entered rapid eye movement sleep and sleep paralysis causes them to turn upside down and drift downwards in a deep sleep spiral. <laughs> so they're not even just sinking. They're like, whoa, spinning down. And yeah, they basically just do this corkscrew, corkscrew spiral, kind of like a falling leaf. And um, yeah. And it's to... To avoid getting messed around with on land from all the... Or the surface. If you were sleeping at the surface, you know, killer whales could just come and bite, take a chunk out of you. Yeah, but, I mean, a killer whale could get you underwater too, couldn't it? I guess so, but maybe they don't want to dive down deep. I mean, maybe it's like, at the surface, you're more likely to encounter something. I mean, why would an orca just be randomly looking down in the deep sea for a sleeping seal? It seems too... It doesn't seem like the cost but benefit of that would be paying off, you know? it's too The ocean's too big, Ben. It's a three-dimensional, enormous landscape, or waterscape. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's true. I just would have imagined orcas slash killer whales, they're smart creatures. We know they're smart. So Mm. if seals started sleeping underwater to avoid them, (laughs) I would have thought they could work it out. Well, apparently not, or apparently not Or they just hang around an area that they know to sleep for ten minutes. And they've got to come yeah. up for air because they're sleeping in a place they can't breathe. I know, yeah. <laughs> what? I know. It's quite exhausting to think about as well. Only ever being able to sleep for 10 minutes. And if you you know you get woken up by bumping into the bottom of the ocean, it's horrible. It's phenomenal. And of course, it's elephant seals that can do it. But how bizarre. Because I honestly wouldn't have pictured them 
getting worried by anything on land. No, but there we go. There we go. So that's it, I think, for any other business. Unless you've got anything, which I think no. so. You said no? No, no I'm, I'm good. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com. If you want to ask us a question, if you want to make a correction. Yeah. Thank you, as always, to our fantastic patrons who keep the podcast going. Your support is massively appreciated. Yep. And it keeps it free for everyone else. Uh, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash herphighlights. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.